scripture this morning. You'll find it in Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, that is uh, page uh, 1029 in your the Bibles in the seat in front of you. If you don't have your own Bible with you, please take that out, turn to it. And if you'll please rise together with me, and we will read this passage. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 12. And we will read uh, through the 17th verse. This is the address to the church in Pergamon. And to the angel of the church in Pergamon write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name. And you did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrificed to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of Nicolaitans. Therefore, repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Amen. You may be seated. Please contemplate these words in preparation for the service sermon. will be helpful to have your Bibles open there to this third church in our study of these seven churches. <clears throat> when you read the term or hear the term city gates in the Bible, uh, they represent more than just an entrance into a city. The city gates were more like city hall. It's, it's where the, uh, the important leaders in town would gather and make their decisions. Councils were held there. Uh, soldiers were housed in the city gates. So if somebody attacked the city, they would immediately come out and uh, fight for the safety of the city. The city gates are places of power. And so when you read in, let's say, Proverbs 31 about the Proverbs 31 wife, it says this, her husband is respected at the city gate. He takes his seat among the elders of the land. So when when this woman's husband comes forward, he's respected at this place of power, city hall. People know who he is. He has a good reputation, largely, at least in part due to his wife, and, and he takes a seat among the elders. And also, when you turn to the New Testament in Matthew 16, Jesus looks at his disciples after Peter had made this great confession, saying, you are the Christ, you are the Son of the living God, Jesus looks at Peter and says, I'm going to build my church at the gates of hell. 
I'm going to build my church at the at the city gates of hell. I'm going to build my church right in the middle of where uh, Satan's power is. Jesus intends to build his church, to purposefully put his church at the gates of hell, at the places where it's most dark in this world. And then he promises Peter, and my church will prevail. No matter what it may look like in the church, no matter what it may look like in the culture, ultimately my church is going to prevail. And so when you turn to these seven churches in the book of Revelation, it appears that one of the churches has been planted at the gates of hell. Look with me in verse 13. I know where you dwell. So this is Jesus speaking to the apostle John, giving him this vision. And Jesus is walking amongst these seven churches. And he walks into this one city, this one city named Pergamon. And he says, I know where you dwell where Satan's throne is. What a powerful statement. Yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. Unusual description for a city. This is the city where the throne of Satan is located. Now, Pergamum, we wouldn't know too much about it without studying it, but it's a very distinguished city in the New Testament times. It had a beautiful amphitheater that you could see as you entered the city. 10,000 people would sit and listen to plays and music in this amphitheater. It was home of probably one of the greatest libraries in the ancient world. Imagine 2,000 years ago, it had a library of over 200,000 books. It also was a a, um, a prov- it's a city in a province that had been given power by the Roman government. So this whole area is dominated by Rome, and Rome decides, hey, certain cities have our power. And it's called the power of the sword. So they uniquely had the power to put people to death, to sentence people to death. So Pergamon was a very distinguished city. It was also an extremely religious or extremely spiritual city. It was home to the temple of Ascalapos, I think is how you say his name. This is the, the God who was referred to as the Savior. And he was the one who healed people from diseases. And his symbol was a staff or a pole with a snake wrapped around it. And you see that symbol still today in medical, uh, in, in some medical places. And people would come from all around and they would bow down to this snake on a pole hoping that they would find healing, and they would call that God, he's the Savior. Also, it was home to the temple of Dionysus, the god of fertility and wine. So people would gather together, and they would eat raw meat. They would gorge themselves on raw meat, this raw meat that's been sacrificed to this uh, this god Dionysus. And then they would drink to excess wine, and then they would exercise all kind of sexual immorality. In fact, the, 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 the practice of Dionysus was, was so wicked that even the Roman Empire, which was wicked, uh, banned it at some point, saying it's just, it's too, it's, it's just too evil. And so this was the home of Dionysus. It was also at the city center. When you came to Pergamum, the city center was a, a cone-shaped mountain. And at the very top of the mountain is this huge temple of, to Zeus, and as you approach the city 
from some distance, the way the temple was on the top of the mountain, it looked like a giant throne. Finally, Pergamon was well known for its emperor worship. So regularly there'd be parades down the main street and all kinds of little altars on the side of the street. And you were required to take a little pinch of incense and say, Caesar is Lord, Caesar is Lord. So this is the, this is the city that Jesus is walking around in. Now just try to stop and absorb that for a moment. These, these massive temples dominate the city. Together, they, they symbolize the culture's dedication to physical comfort, sex, alcohol, and power. Now, I, I know I'm asking you to imag- use your imagination, and it's a stretch. But can you imagine being in a culture that way? That, that when you looked across the landscape of the city or you looked across the landscape of the culture, every time you went out and looked at the billboards, every time you examined things, it was, all, it was always dedicated to physical comfort, always dedicated to sex or alcohol or power. Can you imagine living in a culture like that? Well, yes, you can. Because that's the water that we swim in here in the United States and especially in Wilmington. Now, this was the city that was Satan's throne. And Jesus has purposely planted a church in this city. Jesus is planting churches in these kinds of cities. He's not planting his churches on islands. There's all kinds of islands in the Aegean Sea just just uh, uh, west of Pergamum. And he could have said, I planted my churches on all these tiny little islands where, where the culture can't invade them. But instead, Jesus is always invading the culture. He's coming in. He's purposely, he's intentionally planting this church in a place that's called Satan's throne. And as he assesses the church, he has some strengths and weaknesses that he wants to observe. And I want us to look at those too. Verse 13. I know where you dwell. And despite the fact that you're in this place called Satan's throne, you, you hold fast to my name. It's probably a, a reference to emperor worship. In other words, when you have, when the city comes together and has the big river fest, and everybody's supposed to put their incense out and say Caesar is Lord, and maybe they don't mean it, but everyone's supposed to do it, you pass that by. And people notice you don't say it. And some people begin to, to talk about the Christian church. Hey, they're not saying Caesar is Lord. In fact, they're holding on to some other name. And because Pergamum had the power of the sword, they decided, hey, we'll round up some people and we'll put those people to death. And at least one of those people is Antipas. We're not sure exactly who Antipas is. Sort of legend and scholars come together and they make this guess. He was the pastor of the church. And in an effort to terrorize the people, to have sort of a controlling fear over the church, they take the head guy out. And since they have the power of the sword, they behead him. Or they kill him. Some scholars think that, that there was a, an idol that was a golden or a, a copper bull. And there was a fire underneath the bull. And they stuck him inside and roasted him alive. 
What we know for sure is he has this title or this designation. Look at it. He's my faithful witness. What's interesting, if you look back in chapter 1, verse 5, grace, let's go back to verse 4. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. This is the description of Jesus. And from the seven spirits who are before Jesus' throne and from Jesus, the faithful witness. I mean, Antipas only gets one line in the Bible. This is all we know for sure is that he's just like Jesus. He has a title just like Jesus. Jesus was the faithful witness. And Antipas, whatever happened to him, he was just like Jesus. I mean, imagine. Imagine how sweet that must have sounded. And yet... Yet it had a high price. To be called his faithful witness. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be costly. I mentioned this before a few months ago. I traveled to India. And and when I was there, I gave this um, gospel message to a, a big tented area. It's a big field, huge tent. And maybe 1,500 people there. And then after I preached, somebody came up who, who spoke the language, and they were sort of having a call. It was largely a pastor's conference, and then this bigger conference that was this night, people from the surrounding villages would come out. It's this massive event. And so I was standing off sort of even outside the tent, and, and people coming forward. Some of them coming forward, responding to the gospel. Some of them coming forward because they're pastors of churches and they have to go back to their hometowns. And their hometowns are very hostile to Christianity. And so they're asking for prayer. And when somebody in India comes and says, I desire to be baptized, I desire to follow Christ. And they come up front like, like you might think of this new members here are the two questions they get answered. They get asked, are you willing to die for your faith? Second question, are you willing for your family to be killed for your faith? If you can't say yes to those, both of those, you can't get baptized. So this is the kind of environment I think Pergamum is living in. If you're going to say yes to this thing called the church, called Christ Community Church Pergamum, it's a serious thing. It might cost you your life. Just a few months ago in February, the world watched in horror. You couldn't avoid seeing at least a a still picture. Twenty-one men of the church in Egypt, all standing, hands behind their back, hooded terrorists behind them, and in one moment, all their heads are severed. It's a way to instill terror on the church in Egypt to say, no, who has the power of the sword? We have the power. And you're going to do what we say. And this church knows who has the real power. They look at Jesus and Jesus says, you know who has the real power. Look at verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has that sharp two-edged sword. 
And they know, yes, there is a sword that might pierce a body, but there's another sword that might pierce a soul. And so we know that person, and we're going we're gonna to hold fast to his name no matter what happens. 2,000 years later, today, Jesus is still planting his church at the gates of hell. He's still looking for men and women. He's still looking for a high school, a college student, a businessman to say, hey, you were, you were my faithful witness. I, I know it cost. It cost your career. It cost you a relationship. It cost you friendships. It cost you being ostracized. I know it cost, but, but you're my faithful witness. Imagine finding Antipas in heaven. First thing you're going to say, you're the faithful witness. He's going to have that title the rest of his life. So Jesus is still looking for those kinds of people. Despite their incredible courage, Jesus does identify a pretty significant problem, a weakness. that They've, uh, they've withstood this sort of lying, roaring, uh, frontal attack. The, the, you, you know, Satan prowls around like a roaring lion, and so he's roared through the powers of the government, and this church has withstood this, this frontal attack. And even though they've been faithful there, they're in great danger of rotting from the inside out. They're in great danger of rotting from the inside out because they have bad teachers have snuck into the Sunday school classes, has snuck into the community group. And they're beginning to teach something that's not right with the Bible. And, and they, they, they are leading people to moral failure. Somehow this strong... Uh, holding fast, faithful church, able to sort of uh, repel the the uh, roar of the lion. That nobody was guarding sort of the back door, and, and these teachers were sort of sneaking in, and nobody was there to say, "Hey, this isn't right. What you're saying." Verses fourteen and fifteen. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel. This is a reference that we'll talk about in a minute to Numbers 24, 25. So they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So although they're fighting this power, they're getting eroded from underneath. So also you have some who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The, the congregation at Pergamum could have learned from the congregation at Ephesus. You might remember a couple of weeks ago we started in this, this series about the church of Ephesus. And the church of Ephesus, it had some strengths and it had some weaknesses. But one of its strengths is that it tested false apostles. So when people tried to come in, they put them to the test. And I talked about this little electric meter that you, you put the probes in, you find out if it has real power. And so the, the church at Ephesus had these same false teachers try to come and sneak into the church and sneak into a small group and sneak into a Sunday school class, maybe sneak in behind the pulpit and try to say something false. But the elders were there. There were people there saying, no, that's not true. And, and they walled their church off from that false teaching. But, but Pergamum didn't do the same. 
And Jesus draws this well-known Old Testament event, numbers, a parallel to this Old Testament event, numbers 20 through 225. And I'll let you read that on your own, but I'll tell you exactly what was happening. In these chapters, the Israelites, they're still wandering around in the desert. And they're, they're getting ready to move from the 40 years of wandering into the promised land. So they're on the east side of the Jordan River. Once you cross the Jordan River, you get into the promised land. So they're all camped out on the east side in a region called Moab. And so the leader there is his name is Balak. And Balak had his people worship a false god called Baal Peor. And he wanted to get rid of the Israelites. And so as the king, he decided, well, here's how I want to get rid of the Israelites. I'm going to have a prophet come, a guy named Balaam. And Balaam, I'm going to take him up to the top of this mountain where it oversees all the Israelites who are camping. And I'm going to ask him to cast down curses on the people. Because he's been able to do this effectively before. And so now I'm going to hire him. I'm going to pay him money to cast down curses on the Israelites. So he pays, Balak pays Balaam money. They go to the top of the mountain. And Balak says, go for it, Balaam. And Balaam tries to cast down these curses three times. But God intersects. And every time Balaam opens his mouth, it's a blessing on the people of God. And Balak is like, what's wrong with you? So he keeps trying, he keeps trying, it doesn't work. And so they, I guess they sort of reconvene sometime later and say, hey, this frontal attack isn't working. We've got to try another strategy. And Balaam says, hey, here's the best strategy. We can't get in the front door, so let's come in from behind. These people have been wandering in the desert. These men have been looking at the same women the whole time. So let's send in these exotic Moabite women. And get them to have sex with the men. And then let's, th- let's invite them to our feasts. And even though they're to a false god, they've been eating manna the whole time. They're really going to like our feasts. And so they come in and they set this trap. They send in the women. They send in the food. And the Israelites, they fall right into the trap. And Jesus is looking at Pergamum and saying, see, the same thing's happening. You're fighting this front door battle. You're faithfully holding on to me. But somehow people have come in the back door and they're appealing to your physical appetites. And you're falling for those things. And he sees it and he says, you've got to repent. You've got to, you've got to turn that around. See, Balaam had this, this idea of if you can't beat them, join them. If we can't get in through the front door, let's just join with them in their small groups and let's help them say it's okay to have some accommodation to the world. It's okay to have some accommodation to your physical desires. And what began to happen is that the people of God, both in Israel and in Pergamum, began to rot from the inside out. Balaam isn't the real teacher in Pergamum. Obviously, it's a number of years from them. But it's people like that trying to come into this church. And they were saying something like this. Well, it's okay to keep your faith, but you don't want to allow those beliefs to construct any barrier to your sexual desire or your physical appetite. I mean... It's okay to sort of believe this stuff about God, but you have sexual feelings. You have physical appetites. 
And we don't want any barrier from God to be set up over in this camp. We don't, we don't want to do that. So let's just say it's okay to do whatever you feel like doing and you can still hold on to God. Any of this sound familiar? I want to give one example. And especially as I was thinking about this week, I've been to a lot of high school graduation events. And this is a a high school person transitioning into college. This is the kind of thing that they're going to just be inundated with. When when I was in high school and college, just after the dinosaurs uh, quit walking the earth, the, the, the argument in that day was typically around God's existence. How can you know God exists? If you, if you know he exists, how, how do you know if he's real and, and, and what is he like? And so there were all kinds of arguments, all kinds of books printed about trying to prove God's existence. And in philosophical terms, there was the ontological argument or the epistemological argument. So these are just big fancy words that make you think, how do I know something's real? So you go back and you appeal to, let's say, creation. Well, how did creation get here? Must have had a creator. You have all these kinds of arguments. That's not really the argument, especially in the, on the college campus today. More often in today, the more forceful cultural arguments against God today don't have to do with his existence, but has to do with morality. Meaning... You come into this environment and you hear this something like this. A God who would impose his moral standards on my personal autonomy. I don't know if I can believe in a God like that. A God who would define my sexual preferences. I'm not sure I'm interested in a God like that. A God who would define good and evil in certain ways. A God who, who behaves the way the God, that God behaves in the Bible is, is really not worthy of my worship or affirmation of his existence. So I'm just rejecting God because I don't want God to get the final word in my life. Whether he believes or not, I'm not really even into that argument. What I'm into is myself. I'm into my my personal preferences, and I can't have any word above my word. So the argument tends to be more moral rather than just his existence. And Balaam's teachers are always trying to infiltrate the church. Whether it's 2,000 years ago, or or 3,000 years ago, or today. Always trying to come in and say, well, I guess it's okay if you believe in God, but you have to have moral authority over your own life. And these teachers were successful in Pergamum, and they've been successful today. I don't have to point out that there's an enormous amount of pressure on the church to allow people to define their own sexuality and sexual preferences. We just don't want a God. We want to raise our hands. We want to sing the songs. But we just don't want a God who's going to define our sexuality or our sexual preferences. We'd rather define those for ourselves. And many of Balaam's teachers have infiltrated the church. And whole denominations have been swayed by it. 
I want to just note this when you read this letter. It's Jesus' evaluation of the church at Pergamum. It's not Jesus' evaluation of Pergamum. He knows what Pergamum's like, but he's addressing the church in Pergamum. He's primarily concerned, at least in this letter, what's happening with my people? What's happening with the lamp, the light that's in this place? Yes, I know, and I'm going to take care of the culture, but I'm really trying to address the people inside the four walls. And the reason I say that is because, as one pastor said, it's sometimes easier for the church to spend its energy trying to make an unregenerate culture look like Christians rather than focusing its effort in making the Christian church look like Christ. It's so easy to have all this energy and motion and saying, we need to get the lost culture to look this way, and maybe we should have influence in that way. But the primary purpose of this letter is to address the people inside the church and say, you guys don't look like Christ. So how can I have an effective witness in the culture if the people inside the church calling themselves Christian look just like the rest of the culture? But if you don't want to look like the rest of the culture, if you want to be a faithful witness, it's going to be costly. You might remember the story of Gideon in Judges chapter 6. You can go back and look at this later. But Gideon has a visit by the, an angel. And the angel says, hey, I need you to get some men together and fight this huge army. And so he does, and, he, and then God winnowed down, winnows down the army, remember, to 300 men. And Gideon's like, 300 against the whole army? No way. And this 300 men, because of God's help, actually defeats the army, and that's what, really what we think of Gideon or how we remember Gideon. But what happened before the fight is God said, Hey, Gideon, I'm choosing you, and I'm going to choose you to fight this major battle, but the very first thing I need you to do, go home and put to death your idols. Before you can do anything for me, you've got to go home and put death the idols in your, own, in your own house. See, it can be easy to say, I'm ready to go out there and fight, and then really not, not really look at your own life. Not really look at the life of the church and say, what are the things that we need to be putting to death in ourselves, in our church, before we go out and try to attack the culture so resist looking around. Instead, ask the Lord to help you see the, the true condition of your soul. What, what's the inside battle in you? What's the inside battle in our church that first needs to be addressed before we address the broader issues in the culture? The solution. So we have a strength. We have the weaknesses here. Two things I want to point to as we come towards the end, a solution. I think the very first thing you must settle in your mind is whose word is going to prevail. See, somebody's word prevails. And I think if you're going to engage in the fight, you've got to just decide at the very beginning. It's worth deciding, I think, in the very beginning, whose word ultimately is going to have authority. See, when you're fighting against strong physical desires or cultural pressures, there, there are going to be all kinds of voices in your head. 
You're going to have voices in your own head rationalizing your behavior. Somebody else is going to come alongside and say, hey, that's okay. And the question is, whose word is going to prevail? You remember, you've had this conversation, I'm sure, if you were, when you were younger, some, somebody you were talking to, and you're going to have, are you going to have premarital sex? And it, frequently you'd have these guys say, well, I don't think so. And I'd say, if you don't think so, then you are. You're just leaving the door open just a little bit because you know you have certain desires, but yet you have to lock it down and say, this is what God's word says. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have God's word prevail, not my word, not somebody else's word, but God's word is going to prevail. Probably the most important statement in the Bible is Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God said... God is the sovereign creator who is Lord and definer of all things. Everything in the universe, the planet, the laws of physics, the laws of morality, you and me. Everything was created by God. Everything was given value and definition by God. Everything was given value and definition by God. God is the creator and the Lord, so his word is ultimate. Therefore, we're not free to create meaning or value. We're not free to redefine what he has already defined. We have just two options. We can discover the true value assigned by God and revealed in his word, or we can rebel against that meaning. See, we don't get to come in and impose our word on his word. His word imposes on us and redefines and shapes us. Verse 16, therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. See, he's trying to help this church at Pergamum remember the sword that Jesus has is more powerful than the sword of the government. The word of his mouth, the sword, is more powerful than somebody else's word. It's more powerful than your word. It's the word that's going to stand forever. And then so the second part of the solution is doing something about it. First is, is saying God's word prevails. And the second part of the solution is doing something about it. You see this in Numbers 25, and it's worth going back and looking at. But the people had, God had said, you see that this Balaam has infiltrated you, do you not? Yes. And Moses takes the people before this tent where God's presence is, and they're having a giant prayer meeting. God, whether we didn't see it or we didn't want to see it, but we know this has infiltrated us. I know we know where we have uh, taken on these idols for ourselves instead of serving you. We're sorry. And right in the middle of this prayer meeting, imagine uh, a guy comes, a guy named Zimri comes with a Moabite woman, walks right in front of the congregation and goes over to his tent for a different kind of meeting. So all these people are repenting of their sexual immorality, their connection to idolatry. In the middle of this, somebody that everybody knows says, hey, in your face, God. In your face, Moses. I'm going to do what I want to do. And there was one man who was a priest named Phineas. And he follows the couple in a few minutes later with a sword. And he runs it through his back and through her stomach. And puts him to death. 
And that's when God's wrath relented. Remember when we studied in Colossians? Put to death. That's what it looks like. It's, it's a war. It's not something, that, well, I've got this problem. <laughs> you know, I guess I'll work on it one day. No. You see, it's a war. You have to have a wartime mentality. You're going to either be putting it to death or it's going to be putting you to death. Those are the only two options. So my question for us first is a whole church. Are we really going to stand on the word of God? I mean, we say it, but man, to do it's hard. Secondly, as a church and you as an individual, are you really ready to put things to death that are killing you? They're eating you up from the inside out. Yes, you say all the right things. You got the Apostles' Creed memorized. But inside your soul, you're rotting. And it's because you just haven't decided, I'm going to run this through with a spear. If you do, Jesus says, I'm going to give you these two things. They're kind of strange, and the scholars are all over the map as to what they mean as hidden manna. And probably it means this manna that was hidden into the, in the Ark of the Covenant, and it was a symbol of there's a new word of God that you're going to eat, and that is the word of Christ. Man does not live by bread alone, but by what? Every word that comes from the mouth of God. So you're, you're going to feast not on manna from heaven. You're going to feast on Christ and his word. He's going to nourish you. He's going to get you through. And then you're going to get this white stone that has a new name on it. And most people think in the culture the white stone was a, an entrance into a banquet. It's like a ticket. So here's the banquet. Here's the... The little picture of a great feast that's coming. Revelation ends in a great banquet. And so he says, I want you to remember. I want you to come forward when you meet together and remember. This is the, this is the real end. This, we're ending on a great banquet. So no matter how hard it is right now, no matter how difficult it is, I want you to remember you're headed for this end that will then never end. 